where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Sally Likely and Kathleen Montspeech. Listeners, we are so excited to be bringing you our first bonus episode today. Throughout the month of April, we covered the impact of COVID is having on different industries throughout the agriculture communities, beef, produce, and following the airing of our animal protein segment, the packing plants in the United States have been temporarily opening, closing and reopening, causing a lot of talk and concern related to the meat supply. So grocery shelves have been cleared of meat, fast food chains have been short of hamburger. Um, we're talking, we're hearing, you know, lots of rumors from the media about uh, meat shortages and people are stocking up. And we thought that this would be the perfect time to bring a couple of experts to talk about what's really going on in the beef industry um, surrounding surrounding the supply chain issues, um, shortages if there is going to be one, and a lot, you know, talking about some of the policy proposals that are floating around there too. Yeah, we want to get to the heart of the issue and there's a lot of headlines going around trying to scare, I think, consumers specifically and even producers to some extent. So we wanted to bring on a couple of experts uh, that, that I know personally, but that are also heavily involved in the beef industry. Uh, the first guest we have is Mr. Kevin Jones. He resides in Southern Idaho, owns and operates Intermountain Beef, and is also president of the U.S. Uh, Meat Export Federation. So he's on, he knows the feeder side of things as well as the export market as well. So with that, Kevin, would you want to introduce yourself a little bit further? I'm sure. So it's a pleasure to be here and uh, yeah, yeah, as you said, I, we own and operate a family uh, cattle feeding operation here in Southern Idaho, uh, my brother and I, and I also have a farming operation here. So like I said, family owned, operated, and uh, then I've also been involved with uh, some of the promotion side through the Beef Council and the Federation of State Beef Councils. And then, and then internationally, I've been involved here for several years with U.S. Meat Export Federation. Cool. Well, we're interested to um, dive in a little bit more to your perspective on things. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to introduce also Jared Brackett. He's a cow-calf producer from South Central Idaho as well. He has been involved in multiple leadership opportunities at both the local, state, and national levels and offers a great perspective to this topic as well. So, Jared, would you want to give a little bit more about your background and your family operation? Yeah, thanks. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys today. Um, like Kevin, I mean, our operation is it's a family operation. Um, it changes kind of year to year as we don't have one set program we do or don't do. We've currently we're retaining ownership um, of our calves and feeders and uh, paying a feedlot to feed them. And then they're going into premium branded programs such as Oregon Painted Hills Natural Beef, and then also Country Natural Beef are two that come to mind that we're dealing with now. So um, we've been around for a little while. Um, I'm fifth generation here in Idaho, and um, yeah, we just we just try to keep our operations moving forward so they'll be there for the next generation. Great, and I appreciate you guys coming on, even if you are a bit past the millennial generation, we need some words of wisdom um, coming here. But can one of you um, maybe tell us what's really going on in the um, meat supply chain right now? So, so it's totally disrupted, um, which I'm sure everybody's aware of. Um, with the packing plants being uh, not able to have the slaughter capacity and, and 
beef and pork, you know, that we're backlogging those animals in the feedlots and, and, um, you know, it's just not a good, it's not a good situation, no doubt, because the consumers are demanding our product. Um, we see all time record highs on the, on the uh, retail side, highs that we've never seen before. And, uh, and, but we've got low prices for the producers because we've got this squeeze at the packing level and, uh, all of that's come from fallout from the COVID disease. So whether you got, if they got employees that are scared to show up or because they're afraid they're going to catch the disease or feel like they've been exposed. So they're, they're staying home to self quarantine or they've got, you know, other responsibilities like their kids are at home or those kinds of things. So that's what I'm hearing from the Packers is that, you know, they don't know every day what their production capabilities are going to be for that day. Can you give us an estimate, Kevin, on what the current capacity of meatpacking is right now versus normal times? What's what's being produced? I would say we're down about 30%. Wow. So about, a, about and we were down around 35%. We've creeped up just a little bit last week on our capacity. Some of the plants have been closed completely, have reopened, um, but they're limited production. So it's, you know, then I think the plants are from my estimation, anywhere from a third, 25, 30% up to 85%. So, but overall as an industry, I think we're probably pretty close to that 70% mark. How many, do you know how many pounds of beef that estimates to just to give consumers an idea or our listeners an idea of how much beef is actually moving through the market, like on a daily basis? I could get you that number, but it might take me just a minute. Oh, that's, that's okay. I was just trying to put some things into perspective a little bit for, for people. Because um, some of the packing plants process thousands of cattle a day, correct? Yeah, so, so if I look through, we're like, so like this week right now, um, week to date, we're a hundred and we're at 175 on the kill. That's the number of kill. And last year, or last week, we were 155. So we're about 20,000 head right now, and it's only Tuesday. Well, this, yeah, this is today, I guess. So Tuesday. So right now, we're still, we're about 20,000 head over the, the prior week. But last year, we were at 241. So 70,000 head less in two days. Okay. So a lot of meat. <laughs> a lot of meat, yeah. Take that times, whatever, 850 pounds or something like that. So Jared, can you talk to us about how this is impacting the feeder portion of the industry? Because animals that have to be kept on feedlots longer, on, on feed longer, et cetera, et cetera, has to be having a major impact on you guys as well. So it does. I mean... The one nice thing about like our segment a little bit is we have the ability to stretch our cattle out. I mean, we, we can find grass to put them on before we put them in the feedlot, um, stretch them out a little bit. Um, if they're in the feedlot, we can change their rations and stretch them out a little bit. The, the bigger issue that we have right now with the stuff we're custom feeding 
is, you know, I've currently got a pan of cattle that we're at the, we're getting towards the tail end of them, but I mean, there's still 40, 50 head in there that they were ready to go three weeks ago. Um, and so all they're going to do is continue to get fatter. And what that does, that increases your pounds of beef. And also you can get into some penalties as far as like your yield and some of those things that will get, get you into trouble. So um, a lot of people are starting to talk about, all right, maybe instead of putting feeders in the feedlot right now, we'll, we'll try to find grass to run them on, or we'll put them on more of a maintenance ration, which has been, I think, helping a little bit. But ultimately, the bigger issue is to get these packing plants back up and running at full speed. That's that's our only real way out of this, because until they get back to full speed, we can do all these little things which will help, but it's not going to solve our problem because we've gone rounds just trying to figure out different ways to maybe try to ease the burden a little bit, you know, and like myself personally, we've been selling locker beef to people out of that last part of my pen of cattle that have been sitting there. I mean, there's a lot of demand for that meat. And if you can find a butcher to kill them, then you can actually do fairly well selling locker beef to people. Um, but and that's a drop in the bucket compared to what we need to do. It's very meaningful to me and, helps my bottom line but as far as like chewing through this big massive deal of beef that we've backlogged it doesn't really do much for it other than make us feel good well and it's only those those smaller packers can only or smaller butchers can only process a few head a day compared to the large numbers kevin brought up that we're behind schedule on and so it might make a difference and it helps kind of niche marketing but yeah like you said in the big scheme of things it's not it's not doing a whole lot is it trickling down already to the cow calf producer as well so i don't know necessarily if it's trickling down to the cow calf producer i think there's a lot of cow calf producers who are very very vocal and very upset um because of what they think their perceived loss might be this fall um and I've been telling those guys, I mean, it's it's all good and dandy to be talking about what's going to happen this fall, but uh, let's let's talk about people who have suffered real losses right now. I mean, that first 300 head that we killed, you know, I don't have the exact averages on them, but I guarantee you they were 20, 25 cents under where I got last year for them, and they're actually better cattle this year. So, you know, you equate that back, you know, you're talking almost three, four hundred dollars a head difference in price from last year to this year and that's that's the covid loss i guess you're you're into place and i think usda has come up with uh you know like more of a safety net try to help make up 85 percent of that which is going to help a lot of people but there's a lot of extra noise out there right now too that i don't think is helpful and a lot of people feel like a good crisis is a great time to try to promote new policy and i don't know if that works all the time you know, that's a great segue into the big question that Valerie and I have had, um, just watching what, what the beef industry has been doing the last couple of weeks. Um, and I come from the dairy industry and I'm used to a lot of infighting. I've never experienced anything like this on another side of the <laughs> industry. Um, but there's, there's conspiracy theories flying. There's all sorts of policy proposals flying. Um, there's, some, there's some scary suggestions out there um, talking about uh, mandatory country of origin labeling and and other things that you know concern me 
I'd love to hear what your guys, both of your Kevin and Jerry's perspectives are on on both the policy proposals themselves and also um, you know maybe some alternatives or why people why people are bringing these sorts of things forth in a time of crisis. So, so I, I'll <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead, Kevin. We <laughs> both have an opinion on it. <laughs> yeah. um, so I guess my personal opinion on it, and I could be completely off base, but we've had country of origin labeling, um, mandatory country of origin labeling, and when we had that, I think you can look at the data behind it and everything else, and it actually cost our industry money. Um, a lot of the proponents of it, you know, people who are really in favor of it, they, they, they scream about how we had great prices when it was there. And they completely disregard the fact that we were in an all time shortage of cattle and there were record droughts all over the different parts of the country and the world at that point in time. And I think that led more to our massive increase in prices and also a little bit along those same lines, wiped out a bunch of these, medium-sized smaller packers that we really could be using right now if we had them um because their margins were so small and so tight they just they couldn't afford to stay in business so i am always a you know proponent of we need our consumer needs to know where the food comes from but i'm also a big proponent of um voluntary um there's a reason why i'm in these branded programs because i believe in them and i think that uh we have the ability to tell a great story, but it seems like anytime you get the government involved and they, they require you to do something, unintended consequences are always really large. And then I just, I don't feel good about it. So I think we can do plenty with the voluntary label for origin. And I think our consumers will reward us for it. Country origin labeling isn't going to do anything for us right now. And it hasn't, and as Jared said, we had it in place. It was it was a failed policy. We import very little beef in terms of anything that competes directly with, with US beef. What we import the vast majority of is lean trimmings, which we have to blend with our fatty trimmings from our fed cattle to make burgers. So it's we, it's something that we have to have because we don't have enough cows, lean uh, trimmings from our cow slaughter to supply our demand domestically in terms of that. In terms of the export markets, I mean, that's something that, you know, has been uh, kind of, I've heard a little bit of rumblings. Well, why are we exporting, you know, whether it's pork, beef or whatever, because our, our, shores, our store shelves are empty and but the, but you got to remember there too. I mean, when's the last time you had a, a good cow tongue or a or a really nice liver? Um, Americans don't eat many cow tongues, many livers. Um, in the case of pork pork bungs, we export a hundred percent of pork bungs, and that's exactly what it sounds like. China eats them up. So chicken feet, chicken paws is what they call them. And when's the last time you had a good bowl of chicken paws? We export all of those items that the American consumer is not going to use. So you got to remember that a lot of our export value comes from underutilized cuts and offalls from from our production here that has no other home, and it's a lot higher use to go ahead and send it overseas at a much higher value than 
than what we would receive in rendering here. So both of what you just said makes perfect sense to Valley and I. We get it, we understand, and after you've laid it out for us, you know, it makes sense. Why do these sorts of extreme policy proposals persist? How, I mean, are there, you know, are there producers out there who are disgruntled, who don't like the status quo? I mean, of course there are, but why, why do these things keep coming back year after year? I mean, especially in a time of crisis, why? Especially after it's like, We've tried example country of origin labeling and it's not worked. Why, why is it still on the books and why are we, I feel like beating a dead horse again. And spreading, spreading misinformation to consumers who have a lot of buying power. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I mean, I think, I mean, there's reasons, there's a certain segment out there that think that's the cure all for everything. Um, you know, but when you start sitting down and looking at the actual facts and data, the data don't support um, the position. So I think, I think there's a lot of misinformation that's out there um, in terms of why this would be good, you know, just put, you know, U.S. product and consumers will buy it. Well, they're going to buy it anyway. Um, and, and, you know, the most of the, the, the most of the consumers want a good product and we produce a good product here and we produce most of the product here so we have you know we got it we've got an integrated beef supply with canada with mexico i mean we import millions of feeders every year from mexico um and we have a uh integrated uh supply chain with canada so outside of north america we don't really import a lot of beef other than like I said lean trimmings which we have to have to blend. And are those uh, those imports dependent upon trade agreements? So if we stopped you know if we if we implemented mandatory country of origin labeling or we stopped stopped doing our side of the trade agreements would that have repercussions for the American agriculture industry? Well it certainly did before so so you had Mexico and Canada that filed a WTO suit against us on the, on the man, mandatory country of origin labeling. So I said, and they won, and I suspect they would win again if it was implemented. So where, I guess, where do we go from here in, especially in times of crisis when like you go to the grocery store and everybody's hoarded all this beef right now, and then you're also getting buy American beef and the consumers not sure what to think <laughs> to be honest um and they're a lot more removed from the production chain than we are how do we how do we get the message out because talking to them or talking down to them isn't working i i don't feel like but what are your guys's takes on on especially this specific situation and all the fear ensued with the sh shortage in the grocery store right now so i think the thing that we have to realize is um we have the best and the safest beef supply in the whole world. I mean, that's, we're known for it. The USDA stamp of approval means something. It's not like some of the other countries where, you know, things happen. The, here in the U.S., we've got the safest, most nutritious product out there, and our consumers demand it, and they pay for it. Um, I think they also are, are very intelligent, and I think they understand the need to utilize the entire carcass. And so like Kevin talked about, 
you know, there's a reason why we export a lot of stuff because there are things that we don't eat here. Um, we don't eat tongue. We don't eat tripe. We don't eat liver. We don't eat beef lips. There are things that we don't eat, and so they're better suited elsewhere. Other countries like that stuff, so let's send them to them. And we can take that low, lean trim that we get from other countries, mix it with our high-quality fat, and make great hamburger. That We're a hamburger nation. We eat, I don't know the exact number of hamburger that we eat, the pounds per person, but it's a lot compared to a lot of other nations. So as the consumer goes into the grocery store and they see shortages right now, um, I'd like them to understand that this is temporary. We, we will get through it. Um, how long it's going to take, I don't know. Um, I don't know what kind of I – mean, that's kind of the unknown, and that's what makes people a little bit worried. But we're not going to run out of beef. Um, we might run out of beef in the stores temporarily, but we're not going to run out of beef. There's, there's plenty of it. Um, and so they need to just – maybe instead of buying 10 packages of hamburger, buy one, buy two. Love it if they bought 10 or more, but save some for your neighbors too. Um, and as we move forward with this, we're going to continue to ramp back up our, our supply chain, and we're going to try to ease those bottlenecks that we see at the packers and the processors. And when that happens, you know, we need our consumers to continue to consume meat. Um, that's part of it. The other part is, as the restaurant chain and the retail side comes back online, the demand for this product is going to increase again too. So um, we must continue to have that safety first, make sure we're doing the right thing in these plants um, because we want to continue to maintain that number one reputation in the world for our product. Yeah, I agree. I agree, Jared. I think you, yeah, I think you hit nail on the head and it's not a, it's not a production issue right now. It's a, it's a supply chain issue. And when you look at it from that aspect, I mean, it's it's unfortunate what the hog industry is having to do in euthanizing hogs, and and you know I I can't imagine how heart wrenching that is to have to put you know a whole bunch of your hogs down because you can't get them through a, a packing house and get them out the other side to the consumer. So I mean I don't think we're going to see that in the beef industry. I don't. We got a lot more options than they do. But it's not a supply situation, and it's not because of exports, and it's not because of imports. It's because we have this, this funnel point at the packing house, and the packers are, I think they're doing a, a very good job of dealing with it, um, trying to figure out how to keep their workers and employees safe, and yet continue production. So I think that was very good that that President Trump um, uh, made them critical infrastructure so that they can get, you know, protect personal uh, protective equipment out to their employees, get them first on the list to get those kinds of things, other help along the way, testing, all of that. All of that will help, but it's going to take some time to, to get all these plants back up and running and get that supply back up to normal but we need it to happen as soon as possible from the producer standpoint. Certainly. And we so the other thing, oh, go the ahead. other thing I don't think, the other thing I think we never realized until, I mean, maybe we had an idea, but I don't know. We realized just how fragile the whole supply chain was. I mean, it, 
you you look at what happened when this whole outbreak happened. It started, right? We all laughed at people because everybody ran out of toilet paper. I mean, all the stores were doing all, out of toilet paper. And, and, and I myself, I mean, we're here in Southern Idaho. That doesn't happen in Southern Idaho. Why should there ever be a run on toilet paper in Southern Idaho? I have no idea, right? And I'm like, well, no, it's serious. When we started having, like, we go to a Costco to buy something, we can't get meat. We can't get hamburger. And, and lo and behold, it's almost there, right? So it just shows, you know, how fragile some of the things that we take for granted can be. Um, but it, it's it's completely fixable. It's not like the whole system's broke. So it's just going to take a little bit of patience. And then in, in today's society, we're like, a, we want instant, instant gratification. We want this thing solved now. And um, we've got away from the idea that we go shopping you know, like we did 20 years ago or 50 years ago, we'd go shopping for a month or people would have storerooms full of produce and freezers full of meat. The, today, your average consumer probably doesn't have much longer than a week's supply of food in their fridge, if that. So that kind of plays into this as it moves forward and, and it creates an environment that people who want to try to take advantage of a crisis can play on those feelings. And so we have to step back sometimes and be like, it, it's a serious problem, but it's not. It's it's not the crisis that these other people are trying to drive right now. We're not going to go hungry. We're not starving. No, we just need to take a step no. back and get through it. <laughs> yes, you might not be able to find exactly what you want in the grocery store, but you're not going to go hungry. That I can guarantee you right now. I mean that we are so far from that point. You might not be able to find that nice ribeye you want. You might have to settle for a sirloin or, you know, you might have to, you know, maybe maybe do without meat one last time that week, right? But, uh, which is a horrible thing to have to do. I understand that. But um, we're, we're not going to go hungry. I'm We're not anywhere close to that. I don't think that's, unless something really, really weird. I just, <laughs> I can't see that happening. So... So you both laid it out very well why we don't have to fear a meat shortage, why the shortage is artificial um, and won't be long lived, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things. But what would you say to people who are making the argument right now that our food system um, and infrastructure is fragile and that the just in time, you know, operation, operational way that we do things is, is not good. Um, you know, I've, I have maintained throughout this that the food system has evolved for a reason. I'd be curious to hear both of your viewpoints on that. Well, I think the, I mean, we've seen all sorts of disruptions, right? Outside the food industry, everything else. I mean, it's, it's not just a, it's not just one industry. It's not just the food production, although that's very important, but I mean, it takes people, to make all these systems run. And when you have a pandemic like we have now and you lack people to get it done, then the system starts to break down. But it's not a supply. Um, and, and I don't know what, you know, we have a very efficient food system, probably the most efficient in the world. Um, but it's, you know, it is susceptible. And we're seeing those. And I think what will happen coming out of this is that certainly like the, 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 the choke points like the packing plants and the, 
and some of these processing plants and, and whether it's beef or, or lettuce, you know, they're going to look at, they're going to go through and evaluate their systems and say, how can we do this better if should this ever happen again? But I mean, it's, it's not like this is something that's ever happened in any of our lifetimes, right? So it's something that is, um, you know, it's definitely unprecedented. Um, you know, we had the Spanish flu 100 years ago, and uh, I'm sure things changed out of there, but I have no idea what. Um, but we've, we've got a good food supply system. It's very safe. It's very efficient. It minimizes the cost to the consumer. Um, so I don't, I mean, there, there will be changes, but um, how all those changes come together, I don't know. But I don't think the consumer needs to worry about it um, on an ongoing basis. So The other thing you have to uh, remember is none of this happens in a vacuum. So um, the, the, the protein industry, meat, beef, chicken, pork, is not different than even the airline industry. I mean, when, when, when you have this pandemic that affects everything, um, you know, people not going to work, it affects travel, which affects what people eat on the road, which affects restaurants, which affects, I mean, it just, it, it compounds. And then the other thing that we haven't talked about yet, and I don't know if we're going to get into it, but then you have politics that come into play and that changes everything as well, because then, people have different ideas on how, what the solution should be based on what their political views are, which completely changes, you know, what, what might be best for the industry, what might be best for an individual. I mean, all that stuff has to weigh into, you know, when you're, when you're talking about it. So there, there isn't one right or wrong answer about this. And we just have to remember it is unprecedented what we're seeing right now. Um, but I think we're, for the most part, I think we're going to come through it in really good shape. It's just, we have to be a little bit patient. That's, I think patience is one thing that Americans aren't very good at. And <laughs> one thing about the pandemic where we're really enforcing and forcing people to, to take a chill pill a little bit and be patient with the system. Um, but one of my questions kind of in the interest of time and to start wrapping us up is what what I guess is one good thing that is coming out of this? You know, I've, I've had some time to reflect and have some personal things that it, this has benefited me from, and I see some more direct-to-consumer purchasing options coming out of this, but what are your guys' opinion about one positive thing that this pandemic has brought to either your specific operations or the beef industry as a whole? So I think that uh, probably I, one thing that I see probably the best is I think it made the consumer realize how important agriculture is to its life. You know, we, we, we got away from that idea that, oh, it's not a big deal what happens in, in rural America because, you know, we, we get our food from the store. Um, so when they, when they see some of this, these choke points and it's a little bit limited, it's almost a little bit scary when you walk into a grocery store in one of these big cities and, you know, you've got bare shelves. I mean, I've never seen that before in the United States. You see it third world countries, overseas, that kind of stuff, but never in the United States. So when you go in there and you see that, it really hits home that, you know, we're really lucky. And I think the consumer is actually starting to maybe relate back a little bit that, hey, 
agriculture is important and we have to take care of our people before otherwise we're going to be the same same boat we we might not find what we want when we go to the grocery store yeah i think jared you make a really good point um you know that that i and i felt like that a lot for a lot of years is that we were you know taking advantage of or not i guess maybe not taking advantage of but but kind of taken for granted that you know food's always going to be there and um and you know maybe it took something like this to kind of put a spotlight or a highlight on it and, and maybe it's not all in a real positive way but producers are are out here you know we've we've all been at work trying to do the best job we can producing a healthy wholesome safe product for the american consumer and uh you know, it's uh, it's gratifying to know that you know our work matters, I guess, too. So the other thing that I see from my own standpoint, you know, is family life really has been pretty good through all of this. Um, you know, I know my kids, and and we're always so busy that we hardly ever sit down at the table and have a meal anymore. And, you know, we've had a lot more opportunity to sit down as a family, have a home cooked meal and enjoy company. <clears throat> so I think that's, and I don't know if that's happening, you know, across the whole country, but I hope so. So I think that's a good attribute. Thank you both so much for those perspectives. Um, you know, we, we also like to share hope on here along with what's going on in the industry. So it's encouraging to hear from, from two veterans of the industry to hear what you think um, the good is coming out of this and, and the good of what's to come as well. Um, we can't thank you enough for coming on on such short notice for our first bonus episode. We're excited to have you. Um, we would love to have you back, you know, in six or nine months to see how things have changed in the industry and, and what the fallout might be then. But until then, uh, we thank you so much and wish both you and your operations and your families very well. So thank you very much. It was very fun. Okay. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.